Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. I'm Jenny Westford, Associate Director with the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. At the Economic Opportunities Program, we focus on advancing a more just economy by expanding individuals' opportunities to connect to quality work, to participate in business ownership, and to build the economic stability necessary to pursue opportunity. We recognize that race, gender, and place all dictate who has access to economic opportunity in America, and we work to advance an inclusive vision of economic justice. I'm thrilled to welcome you to today's conversation, addressing job quality and equity in a time of crisis, tools and case studies from local government, workforce development, and policy advocacy. This conversation is part of our ongoing job quality and practice series, in which we highlight innovative work by practitioners and businesses to advance job quality. We're grateful to Prudential Financial for their support of this work. Before we start, let's quickly review the technology. All attendees will be muted. Closed captioning is available for the event. To activate it, click the CC button at the bottom of the screen. We really welcome your questions and your comments, so please use the Q&A button on the bottom of the Zoom window for questions. And you can also upvote questions of interest to you. Uh, we'll leave plenty of time for questions and try to get to as many as we can. And please also feel welcome to engage and share resources in the chat box throughout the conversation. We encourage you to tweet along with us. We'll be using the hashtag job quality. And if you have technical issues, which we're hoping you won't have, but if you do, you can email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. And finally, we're recording and the webinar will be shared via email and posted on our website. I'm gonna to begin today's conversation by providing a brief introduction to our job quality tools library. I'll share why we developed it and walk you through the major sections so you know how to navigate it. There's a lot there, so I'm not gonna be able to get into everything, but I'll lay the foundation of what it is and how you might use it. After that, you'll hear from three amazing leaders from across fields, policy advocacy, workforce development, and local government, whose organizations have tools featured in the library. They'll dive into three specific examples of tools that you can put to work immediately in your efforts to improve job quality and equity. So let's begin. Why did we build the job quality tools library? Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, one in four working adults in the US earned a wage insufficient to lift a small family out of poverty. For decades, US workers have faced stagnant wages, eroding benefits, and increasingly unstable employment. And because of factors including occupational segregation and discrimination, women and people of color are overrepresented in unstable low-wage jobs. In recent years, practitioners across fields have taken notice of this decline in job quality. Workforce development providers connecting people to work have recognized that even as people get better educated and better prepared for work, work isn't getting better for them. Economic development professionals have struggled to strengthen regional economies when the new jobs being created can't support a family, and so on. As leaders of local initiatives have recognized the need to focus on addressing the challenge of job quality, they've asked for practical tools to help them improve jobs and economic opportunity in their own organizations, in the businesses they partner with, and in their local labor markets. In response, in the spring of 2020, we launched our Job Quality Tools Library, a collection of more than 100 curated tools and resources developed by innovative organizations across the country who are engaging in practical action to improve jobs. Many partners, including many of you on this webinar, shared tools and ideas to help us build the library. So let's begin with a quick tour. Uh, the Job Quality Tools Library is organized in five main sections. We have resources to help you understand and define job quality, assess job quality in an organization, learn how to talk with businesses about improving job quality, address specific attributes of a quality job like wages or scheduling, and sustain and monitor job quality practices over time. 
In addition to those five main sections, we've created a special page of resources that directly respond to COVID-19. You'll see this map on our library homepage and you can click on the sections to go to the area of the library that's most relevant to your current interest. There are also several other ways to navigate the library to find what you're looking for. We've designed it so that you can get from one point to any other point in one to two clicks, and we hope the navigation is intuitive, but I'll share a couple tips. One way to navigate the library is to focus on the tools relevant to your field. On the homepage, you'll see an index of tools by field below the table of contents. So if you click the link for workforce development, for example, you'll see a list of all tools in the library that can be used by workforce professionals listed alphabetically by source. On every page of the library, you'll see the same table of contents so that you can navigate to the five sections I mentioned and the special COVID-19 section. You can use the table of contents to navigate the library based on what you're interested in or where you are in your job quality journey. So for example, if you're looking for a tool to help you tackle a specific element of job quality, like wages or a supportive work environment, you might go to section four, which is the largest section of the library. As you can see on the right, this section is broken down into subsections that reflect elements that workers say are core to a quality job. Let's say you're interested in strengthening equity and inclusion in your own organization or within a business that you partner with. You might click that subsection on equity and inclusion. And this has actually been one of our most visited areas of the library over the past several months, which I'm sure won't come as a surprise. That would bring you to a set of tools to help you start to strengthen equity and inclusion across your own policies and practices or with employer partners tools like organizational self-assessments and racial impact analysis tools. You'll hear about one of these tools during today's panel, a terrific racial equity toolkit from the City of Seattle's Race and Social Justice Initiative. And I'll note that although we have a dedicated subsection of equity tools, you'll also find equity and inclusion tools distributed throughout the library, which reflects our belief in centering equity in all efforts to improve job quality. The library is a work in progress. We're continuing to expand it and refine it as we hear from you and learn about new approaches and tools that organizations are using. So we're releasing a survey this week and we really hope you'll fill it out and share your perspectives. What does job quality look like for you? What resources do you need? What challenges are you facing? We'd love to le learn from you and your work. And now I'm excited to transition to our panel. For the rest of today's conversation, you'll be hearing from three leaders who are doing cutting edge work on the ground across different fields to advance job quality and equity. Let me briefly introduce them. Um, there's bio information on our website, so I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail, uh, but please do take a look. This is a particularly amazing group. Grace Heffernan is a workforce development leader. She's senior project manager at Thomas P. Miller and Associates um, and formerly was with Towards Employment. Mariko Lockhart brings the local government perspective. She's the director of Seattle's Office for Civil Rights. And finally, we have Sharmili Majmudar, who approaches job quality from the policy advocacy perspective. She's executive vice president of policy and organizational impact at Women Employed. So thank you so much to each of you for joining us. Um, we're going to get started with a little bit of background on your organizations. And Sharmili, I'd like to start with you. Tell us about the policy advocacy work that you do at Women Employed and how job quality fits into your efforts to advance equity for women. Thank you so much. And I'm so grateful to be here, to be with such an amazing group of uh, folks on the panel, but also all of you who are attending virtually as well um, from all over, including South Africa. How exciting. Um, Women Employed has been around since 1973, and our mission is to improve the economic status of women and to remove barriers to economic equity. 
we seek to build women's economic power by closing the wealth gap at the intersection of race and gender. And we do that by creating policy change, expanding access to educational opportunities, and advocating for fair and inclusive workplaces. We really see centering um, women in this, in this narrative as being critical to making sure that all of our families and communities thrive. Um, one of the things that uh, I would highlight in terms of job quality is that we do approach it from a number of perspectives, but from the public policy and legislative policy perspective, um, what we're really trying to do is set a floor, right? Establish what those minimum standards are um, that really allow for people to be in the best position possible to make decisions for themselves and their families in terms of their economic well-being. And so we want to give workers choices and ensure that the quality of the jobs that they're in allow them to make those important choices. And that means that we advocate for things like paid sick leave, paid family and medical leave, fair scheduling practices, um, pay equity in all of its complexity as well. And we do that understanding that our workplaces are not really actually designed for the modern workforce. That in many ways, our workplaces are actually designed um, around an outdated stereotype of who the, the most common or norm of a worker is, which is generally male and generally like a sole breadwinner in a household, when the reality is so different. Um, women are often co-breadwinners in many households, particularly in households of color, are the primary breadwinners. Um, and they have responsibilities ranging not only from what they do at work, but also what they have to do at home. And so we have to consider when we're designing our workplaces and thinking about what needs our workforce has, um, that we're designing it with these folks in mind, people who have real caregiving responsibilities for children or elders, household responsibilities, who are responsible for um, their home, uh, putting their kids in school, all of these, all of these different things. Um, and we want them to be able to bring their best selves to work and for employers to really benefit from having these dedicated, loyal, um, what, really great workers who can focus on what they need to do because they're appropriately supported. Thanks, Charmila. I really appreciate the link you made between job quality and gender equity there. Um, Grace, I want to go to you next. You're a leader in Cleveland's workforce development system. Um, how did you come to focus on job quality in your work, and why do you think it's important for workforce providers to work with employers to improve the quality of jobs? Thanks. All right. Thanks, Jenny. And I would just um, echo Charmila's comments that I am truly thrilled to be here and so many of the people that I look up to in workforce have been on these types of panels. And so it's a thrill to be here with all of you. Um, and I am actually just one of many leaders in Cuyahoga County who are working to improve outcomes for young adults in our workforce system. Primarily we're focused on that through an initiative called Generation Work, which is an Annie Casey funded initiative about aligning and building efficiencies in the young adult workforce system. And so one of the pillars of that work is really around deepening employer engagement. And so about three years ago, Annie Casey Foundation asked us to start collecting some data, some early data on 
the, the number of employers um, we were engaging with as workforce organizations across the workforce system and just getting a sense of like what what was that number like and and so it turned out that number was like close to a thousand companies annually um and so we had this real aha moment um up until that time we had kind of been having our conversations with employers about job quality and race equity in sort of maybe one-off situations or small roundtable settings and we really realized there was this opportunity to harness our collective efforts and really start to work at scale on issues of job quality with employers. Um, and so once we had this kind of like quantitative number in mind, we really wanted to better understand like what were those engagements like? Um, and so we kind of had a hunch that they were on the more transactional side um, of, the, of work. And so, um, you know, things like um, those sort of foundational placement questions you might be interested in. How many jobs do you have open? When um, does the job start? Wages. Um, and, and, and what we wanted to know is, well, were those conversations about job quality and race equity, were they happening? And so we partnered with the Aspen Institute to conduct a survey of local employer engagement staff um, to really get at that exact question. And we found out pretty quickly that those conversations really weren't happening. And perhaps even more illuminating was sort of like the why behind that. And I think it sort of fell into two categories. The first was that employer engagement staff just didn't really feel equipped to have those conversations with business. Um, and then secondly, and probably really telling about um, sort of our industry as workforce practitioners, um, is that employer engagement staff didn't necessarily feel like that was their place. They didn't necessarily think that they were empowered to have those conversations with business. Um, and so really, it, I would say job quality became a central theme of our work after the findings of that survey. And it's really been sort of that um, goalpost that we've been working towards ever since. Thanks, Grace, and excited to hear more in a few minutes about um, how you developed a coordinated approach to work on job quality and, and race equity. Um, but for now, I want to turn to you, Mariko. Um, you direct Seattle's Office for Civil Rights, and Seattle is nationally recognized for its efforts to center racial equity and social justice in policymaking. And of course, we can't talk about job quality without talking about racial equity. Um, so I'd love to hear from you what it looks like for a city government to take a racial equity approach. Uh, thanks for the question, Jenny. And again, echoing my colleagues on the call, how excited and grateful I am to be part of this conversation. Um, so the city of Seattle launched uh, what we call the Race and Social Justice Initiative in 2004. Um, and we believe it's the oldest government effort to address and end institutional racism in the country. So we have um, learned a lot of lessons along the way and are happy to share those. Uh, we started out with a focus on a lot of training uh, because we were introducing this concept to our you know, thousands of city employees and um, you know, focusing on um, building an understanding and knowledge base on the history of structural and systemic racism in this country and the role that city government has played and can play 
um, in addressing that uh, those institutional barriers. Um, and you know, since then we have expanded to build an infrastructure internal to the city of anti-racist organizers. Every department in our city has uh, a group of folks we call change teams, and they are employees uh, that are volunteering to work on uh, how to advance racial equity, uh, both internally in their departments and also uh, in their lines of business uh, in terms of policy and practice uh, and, and how resources are invested. So, um, you know, our office works to support them through training and technical assistance and convening. Um, and we also have uh, implemented assessment measures. We um, conduct uh, racial equity, our RSGI initiative conducts surveys of both employees and community periodically to assess um, what is the perception and understanding of um, where the city's at uh, in terms of our progress on, um, on racial equity. Um, and of course, we've developed a racial equity toolkit, which you mentioned earlier, Jenny, and I, and I know we'll be talking about our tools later. Um, I would just highlight one example um, that was initiated fairly early after we launched the Race and Social Justice Initiative, which was looking at how do we incorporate um, a racial equity analysis into the practice of, of government. And um, one of the most important places that uh, we can do that is in our budgeting process. And so um, every year our city undergoes uh, you know, a certain amount of uh, process to uh, determine the next year's budget, even though we have a biennial budget. Um, and uh, every department that wants to make a change in terms of um, adding uh, funding to a specific program or initiative, adding staff or uh, eliminating positions or um, or moving funding from one place to another. Any change that departments want to make in their budget, they need to fill out a request form. And that request form asks the question, what is the race and social justice impact of this uh, request? And that uh, requires that all uh, departments are taking into account and analyzing what uh, could be the unintended impacts of this change, uh, you know, if it goes through. So, um, you know, for example, who will be burdened, who will benefit from, from that decision. So that process is incorporated um, into our, our, you know, regular budgeting process every year. And we're now working to expand on that work and um, look at how we can revise our budgeting process overall to make it more transparent and accessible and how we can um, connect the budgeting process to those change teams that I mentioned um, in a more integral way uh, going forward, looking at our 2022 budget and um, seeing how, how much more we can push our processes to drive racial equity. It's amazing. Um, and uh, I want to sort of continue with this thread of how we can operationalize job quality and equity. Um, by turning to the valuable tools that each of you contributed to our job quality tools library. Um, I'm interested to hear about how and why you developed them and how they're being used on the ground to strengthen jobs. Um, and as we go through these, I'm going to ask my colleagues to share each tool in the Zoom chat so that um, folks in the audience can kind of follow along with them. 
Um, and Grace, let's let's start with you uh, and the Employer Engagement Question Bank. This tool is designed to help workforce professionals ask questions about their job quality and their racial equity. Um, tell us about why you developed it and how workforce organizations in Cleveland are using it. Sure. So um, yeah, I told you about the survey that we conducted. And so once we had the results of that, I think we saw kind of two pieces of work um, forming. And the first was around this issue that um, workforce um, employer engagement staff really needed to have um, the tools and the training and the language to be able um, to move their conversations with employers from some of this more um, transactional discussion to more of um, these nuanced conversations around job quality and race equity and more of that kind of relationship building that goes along with all of that. Um, and then the second aspect of it was that um, employer engagement staff had to feel empowered to be able to make good decisions for young people based on the information that they were getting from business. And so um, to that first piece, that's really where um, we relied heavily on um, the existing tools in the job quality library and also expertise in our own community. And so we formed a working group with workforce development professionals and economic development pre professionals um, to create a question bank tool. And the purpose of the question bank tool was truly to be a, a resource for employer engagement staff as they were going into businesses um, to really have a guide to their conversation to some of those key areas of job quality and race equity that we know are critically important to understanding about a business or a job opportunity before you can make a good decision for a young person. Um, and so that, that was the, the first piece. And in some ways, looking back on it, that might have actually even been like the easier part of the work because then it was like taking that tool and really using it. Um, and so the second piece about empowering staff to do their work differently and think differently about their role in the workforce system and their role as stewards of our um, beautiful, magical young adults in our community and the talent they, that they can be for business, um, that, that's really been um, the big shift that we're working towards. And so for any of my job developer um, folks on the call, um, you know, how do we find out today that a young person's placement may not have been a good fit? Well, most of the time, the young person has been on the job for a couple of weeks and they come back and they talk to their um, job coach or career coach, case manager, and like the horror stories roll in, right? It's like there's racist language being used in the workplace. I feel like I'm being treated unfairly. Maybe I'm feeling discriminated against. Um, I feel like there's like a huge generational gap that like I'm just not equipped for. Um, and so like, yeah, that's kind of like standard operating procedure. And, and like, how do we get into this? And it's something that um, Claire Minson explores in her essay, Workforce Development Needs a Reckoning. Um, if you have not had an opportunity to read that essay, I would uh, absolutely recommend it. And if anyone wants to organize um, Claire to have a TED Talk on this topic, I would gladly sign up to attend. But um, part, of the, part of what she talks about is this idea in workforce development, the employer has always been king. 
and that we orient ourselves to the needs of the employer. And so really when we're asking employer engagement staff to have these tough conversations with employers on the front end and to really start getting choosy and saying no to working with some companies, we're really asking for a, a huge culture shift in workforce development. And that's not just even in Cuyahoga County. I think that's lots of places. Um, and so that, that's been the trick, right? There was creating the tool and then now the real work is like really having it adopted in a wholesale way. Yeah, um, that's, that's really helpful. Can you say a little more about how that's going in terms of, you know, are you seeing that kind of capacity building and mindset shift happening among the providers who are using the tool? Sure, so we had covered a lot about employer engagement in our community through the survey and the subsequent tool development. And we've actually launched an employer engagement community of practice. Um, we were finding really bright pockets of work across our young adult workforce system, but we didn't have the alignment or um, the efficiencies built in to be able to like share that knowledge and that capacity across um, employer engagement staff. And so I do think we're seeing um, staff beginning to really think about their job differently. Um, we're also providing a, a monthly space to like use the language of equity, use the language of job quality. Like these are, um, I think of it as like any type of exercise, right? Like you need to like build those skills. And so um, absolutely, I think we're seeing progress um, and and no greater show of that than the fact that our employer engagement community has really stepped up to continue to have this conversation together. That's great to hear. Mariko, I'll turn to you next and the Seattle Race and Social Justice Initiatives Racial Equity Toolkit. Tell us about the history of the tool and how it's being used today. Yeah, I think one of the things that's getting highlighted in this conversation is, um, you know, we ask for folks to, um, focus on racial equity and to integrate it into practices, but um, the need for tools and then the need for support with those tools is so important. And so while we had you know, the big uh, goals uh, and aspirations in launching the Race and Social Justice Initiative, uh, it was really clear that um, departments needed a tool to break it down. How, how do we integrate a racial equity analysis? And so, um, you know, they, the, uh, office at that time established or created the racial equity toolkit and um, it is now some version of it or an adaptation of it is now used throughout the country and you know several hundred uh, municipalities and the reason for that is um, that the people who were in our office at that time um, are now leading um, race equity efforts at a national level so um, Glenn Harris who's the president of race forward was the race and social justice initiative manager in Seattle uh, and created the tool along with uh, my predecessor, uh, Julie Nelson, who now leads the um, Government Alliance on Race and Equity. And so through those national um, organizations, they've been able to share uh, much of um, the work and, and what, what is helpful to other jurisdictions um, around the country. Um, in uh, in Seattle, uh, we now are at the point where every department is required to do a minimum of four racial equity toolkit analyses per year. 
Um, it's a little bit of an arbitrary number. Some folks question, you know, the reason for it. Um, well, other departments say, if you didn't give us the minimum number, you know, we might get lazy and not conduct racial equity analyses. And then we have departments that do, you know, 30 to 40 of them. Um, the goal with the tool is to, um, to ask decision makers to pause um, and to take into account what is the impact um, on those uh, people who will be most affected by this decision. And so first there's a, an important um, piece, the heart uh, we often say of the racial equity toolkit is the community engagement, being sure that we engage uh, those who will be most impacted by this decision. Um, and, and so very often that are people of color, communities of color, um, LGBTQ uh, communities, those who um, are historically have been you know, marginalized and oppressed. Uh, we wanna make sure that we are always listening to those voices um, because that is the history of our country is that they, they have not been taken into account um, when policies are and, and decisions are made. Um, and, uh, and so we provide technical assistance um, to departments when they are going to you know, launch and undertake an, an REP. Um, they can sometimes, sometimes take quite a long time uh, because that engagement, if that engagement hasn't been done, if the relationships with community aren't there, uh, then it's really starting you know, from, a, from a beginning point. Um, an example of an RET, I was just reading recently um, a report uh, on an RET that was done in 2015. The mayor issued an executive order and there was also a joint resolution with city council um, that outlined the need for a citywide employee engagement survey. Um, Grace, you were talking about surveys uh, and, and the important information we can gather from them. This was to understand the barriers to inclusion that might exist at the city uh, that could result in disproportionate departure rates for people of color and women. And so how we would gather that information was gonna be um, really important. We wanted to make sure that the survey itself was inclusive, that we were asking the right people, that the right people were even hearing about the survey and having access to answering it. Um, and so a racial equity toolkit was done um, on that process itself. And also, um, you know, how the results of the survey would be used. Would they be used to actually make change? That was a really key part because so often we gather information um, and then we don't bring it back to those that we've um, reached out to and they don't see the results of, um, you know, all of the information and time that they put into uh, giving us their input. So um, that's one uh, example of, uh, you know, racial equity toolkit being used with respect to the workplace. Um, another thing I would say is the reason that we have the toolkit is to um, ask departments and, and any decision maker to pause and go through a specific set of six steps. And that includes community engagement, includes data analysis. Um, but ideally, we wouldn't need the toolkit because that would be how we make decisions. That would be how we um, you know, move forward with new initiatives. And so um, because we have had the toolkit in use for so many years at this point, um, it is becoming part of the way we um, make decisions and think about new initiatives. So recently with um, the impact of COVID on our economy and the huge drastic reduction in revenue, we were looking as a city at um, budget reductions. And so we have um, a body, the Workforce Equity Policy Advisory Committee that um, does just 
really amazing work. They were uh, forward thinking and did an analysis of the impact on workforce of the last recession and identified that those um, who were laid off at the highest rates were women of color um, and in particular black women. And, we, and, and they wanted to identify a tool that would help departments make decisions if they had to make a layoff to at least know what the racial equity impact would be on their workforce um, in eliminating different positions with the goal of reducing the disproportionate impact. And so um, they undertook an analysis and um, are working to develop a tool for that. Uh, and that's not necessarily a racial equity toolkit, but it shows that um, how much we are uh, integrating and assimilating that perspective in how we approach the work. Yeah, uh, those, those specific examples are really helpful. Um, Sharmili, I want to ask you about Women Employed's tool, uh, filing an employment discrimination charge with the EEOC. Um, I have to say, I love how simple and accessible this tool is. And I'm curious why Women Employed developed it um, and how members of this audience can use it. Um, so why we developed it is exactly how you described it, Jenny, is to make simple and accessible um, things that feel often obscure um, or, or opaque. Like, so one of the things that is a signature of what Women Employed does is to take this step beyond policymaking and actually look at how we ensure that people know what their rights are and know how to access those rights as well. Um, it, a, a law is only as good as it is implemented and enforced. Um, and for many workplace related um, laws, the expectation is that enforcement is going to be complaint driven. That is that the employee is the one, the worker is the one who's going to have to file a complaint or file a charge um, in order to get the issue addressed. Now, we, we do think that there are some ways to be more proactive and not just dependent on complaints because there's a power imbalance between um, workers and, and employers. But even within complaint-driven um, situations, workers need to have access to things that are, are understandable on how it, on what their rights are, what they have access to, who they're supposed to talk to, how they can file a complaint or a charge, how they are protected while they are filing those complaints and charges, right? So we can, we can pass all sorts of laws related to job quality and, and we do. And, and all of these kind of things that could be thought of as simply procedural, um, are actually critical to making sure that the law has its intended impact. And so the, the tool that we have in the job quality tool library is a, like a great example of that. We've, we've done different tools and different educational campaigns for things like paid sick days. And part of the importance too, is that as our laws evolve to be more inclusive in how we think about workplaces. So for example, our paid sick leave law in Chicago um, includes an expansive and inclusive family definition. So you can take, you are eligible for paid sick time to care for someone who is a family member or like a family member, right? This is particularly important when it comes to LGBTQ communities. It's important for immigrant and refugee communities. 
Um, it's important for all of us who have families that are, are chosen and constructed rather than necessarily being the families of origin, right? But for a worker to understand that, um, it, it, we have to make that information accessible to them. Um, we've done something similar with knowing what your leave rights are around COVID because there was federal legislation passed, right, about, about paid leave. But understanding kind of what am I entitled to? How do I get to it? How do I talk to my employer about it? All of those things are, are um, not easy to find. And workers' rights organizations, um, our partners at Arise, who have a tool in the, um, in the uh, tool library in the COVID section, um, would be a great example of that as well. That we need to provide this kind of information, education, and support for workers so that we're really closing the loop and making sure that policy um, does drive forward job quality. Yeah. Um, and have you engaged other kinds of partners in that educational effort, workforce development or otherwise? Absolutely. Yes. And I, I would say like, you know, Grace's work, Marco's work, like they're critical partners, like government agencies, our workforce development partners. We we helped to champion a no uh, no salary history bill um, a couple of years ago, which prohibits the employers from asking questions about salary history as a way of um, helping to close the gender and racial wage gap. Now, this is absolutely critical for workforce development to understand, right? Because you're right at that point of uh, attaching someone to a job and they need to understand what their rights are, but the employers that you're working with also need to understand what the implications of the laws are. And um, we, salary history is some, one of those things that's kind of baked into application systems, like it's automated, right? And so um, we, we did work with local workforce development partners um, with their business service managers, um, and other folks to, ensure that they understood what the implication of the new law was, that they were able to empower their job seekers um, in understanding that and helping to navigate if it came up, but also with their employers making sure that they understood what they were now legally required to do. Um, we've also worked really closely with our um, City of Chicago's new uh, Office of Labor Standards which is also doing a lot of education for employers, but then also trying to make sure um, that it's providing kind of as simple as possible navigation for workers who have questions, possibly complaints um, that they need to surface. And so the, the, those partners are, as we said, you're not gonna have policy have the intended impact unless all of these things are working together. Um, and so these, these are critical partners in ensuring that we're making the strides that we intend to make. Well said. Um, well, Sharmili and Grace, I've appreciated that you both uh, mentioned other tools you're aware of in the library and ways that you're using it in your work. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that um, as a way to help organizations understand how they can make use of, of the library and job quality tools and approaches in their work. Um, so Grace, I'm gonna go to you first. Um, can you say a quick word about how workforce development organizations can use the tools library, um, maybe to build on the conversations they start using your question bank tool? 
Yeah, Jenny, thanks for coming to me. Like, I felt like Charmele was like throwing up the softball and I was like, I can just hit this out of the park. <laughs> um, I knew you could. Yeah, so thank you Charmele for te teeing me up like that. I actually, I think we're really thinking about our work in a very similar way. Um, so we, we obviously are using our question bank tool because we want to collect um, more and better information about um, employer practice and policy around issues that we really care about. Um, but we also see our employers as partners, right? And so it's sort of a two-way street. And we view the question bank as, a, as really an opportunity to give them um, a chance to, to have some reflection, um, to, to really think critically about some of their own policies and practices that may be affecting, um, frankly, their business bottom line. And that's a value that our employer engagement staff can bring to business um, to really be able to help them think through some of these um, issues that maybe aren't a part of their day-to-day -day operations. And so when we organize the question bank, we really try to organize it um, in a way to, to touch on sort of those, those key areas that we felt were both important to us and for young people, but also for employers to be thinking about as they're thinking about how they can um, meet their recruitment needs, meet their retention needs, and have really great outcomes for their employees. Um, and so, you know, just high level, we, we ask questions sort of in the bucket of like hiring, compensation, and scheduling. Um, we ask about employee engagement, development, and advancement. Um, and then some um, pretty uh, robust questions around sort of workplace composition and diversity. Um, and we think that those conversations in many ways um, are the types of conversations that employers wanna be having in some cases, but like they just haven't had the time, no one has asked them. And I'll tell you that anecdotally, we're hearing through our employer engagement question bank that after the events of last summer, the murders of um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and many others, um, and the subsequent racial justice movement that has followed, that employers are more ready and more open to having these types of conversations than they really have been in the past. And so um, the, the, the employer engagement tool is really that like opening of the door with your relationship to the employer. And if you're doing it right, there should hopefully be some questions, right, that come up like, oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, I really would like my benefits package to be better, or I want to work on my workplace culture. And that's really where I think our work has depended on the job quality library. Um, I can tell you that we've relied heavily on the Aspen Reimagining Retail Toolkit, um, the toolkit for engaging with employers and opportunity youth. And then there's two sections in the library that um, we really go back to and in some cases even refer resources out to our employer partners um, so that they can have some more of that education and understanding um, about what they could be doing different or better. And so those two areas, the first is like there's, you can take kind of what we're doing and go that next step which is the assessing of employers around issues of job quality, right? Like you could really get deeper into this work and start measuring and tracking and benchmarking employers, particularly if you're interested in taking them kind of on 
a journey, so to speak. Um, and then there's also a set of tools around strengthening job quality in the workplace. And those are like just the really practical tools when it's like an employer asks you about um, recruitment or um, a wage analysis that you can pull tools from the job quality library and you're not having to reinvent the wheel. Um, and so that's that's really how we've used the tools in the library. We don't necessarily see ourselves as um, the people who should be taking employers on a full racial equity journey or a full job quality journey. I mean, there are plenty of consultants out there. I mean, that is like serious, soul-searching, heavily resourced work. Um, but we can, by opening up these discussions, refer them to um, really great tools that already exist and are out there. So thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Sharmili. Um, there we are. <laughs> Sharmili, I'm just going to uh, hand it back to you very, very quickly to say a word about how you're using the library or especially the work you've done locally to create uh, a job quality definition, which is such interesting work. Sure. I mean, I think we're we're still we're still exploring that. Um, and you know, as women employed, we're we're taking an intersectional approach to thinking about um, what job quality means and and what maybe then kind of needs that more specifically speak to um, to women and particularly Black and um, Latinx women. But. As far as the library goes, I think one of the areas that um, has been particularly useful for us is that there's a whole series of tools that are, are calculators and metrics um, that really help to illuminate kind of what are the costs when we're, we're not advancing certain areas of, of job quality, right? Or thinking about, you know, there's the cost of turnover um, calculator calculator, for example. There's the living wage calculator, like both of those are, are within the um, library. And, you know, we're often called upon to quantify the impact of taking action or not taking action. And, and having tools and metrics available like that in one place with that we know are, are um, included with the lens of job quality is, is really helpful to us as we're doing our policy work. We've actually also been involved in the local Chicago reimagine retail effort as well. And so I think the library has been helpful in, in that way as well. Most of our partners around the table actually are in workforce development and are doing more work directly with employers. And um, so it's been, it's been useful from that perspective too. Great. Um, Mariko, I want to come back to you. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, in the months since we launched the library, one of the sections that's gotten the most traffic is the equity and inclusion subsection that includes Seattle's tool. And we know that many cities and nonprofits are working to strengthen their equity practices. Um, you talked a little bit about what it looks like to do this work when you've been at it for 15 plus years. But uh, for those in the audience who are newer to this work, what advice would you give them about where to start? That's a great question, Jenny. Um, I think, you know, on the one hand, um, I've seen organizations even, you know, outside of government jump in and just, you know, they've heard about the racial equity toolkit and they just start using it on some program or decision that they need to make. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think 
like um, Grace was talking about, uh, there is this, uh, you know, like really burgeoning um, interest on the part of, I think, every organization across this country and probably the world after the racial justice um, reckoning that has been launched uh, after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. So there is this interest. And I think, again, a sense of like, okay, what do we do? I'm sure all of us have seen the many, many postings for um, director of, uh, you know, uh, equity and inclusion, um, you know, in organizations uh, all over the place and um, sort of like there's an, an immediate need to do something and figure out what that is. Um, I think those are all good efforts. And I would say, um, look internally. Uh, I think every organization has um, a, a lot of uh, employees who are really interested in addressing racial equity within their lines of business and within their organizations. There are gonna be people who are gonna be champions, natural leaders in this space. Uh, so I would um, you know, look to um, engage and interrogate that um, internally. Um, and then uh, you know, another thing I would say is there's no, I have found, <laughs> since, particularly since I've been working with the Office for Civil Rights, there is no decision, there is no action that cannot be um, explored uh, more with a focus on equity. Um, you know, like if you're organizing a meeting, who is invited, who did the inviting, um, who had the idea for them? I mean, there is just every aspect of it who set the agenda, um, you know, who uh, will be impacted by the decisions made in that meeting and were they brought into the planning of the meeting? Was it co-designed? Um, and that's just one meeting in one of many meetings of a day, right? So there's, there is really no decision um, that we can make that couldn't be improved by a focus on racial equity. Um, and uh, the other thing I know that um, Sharmili and Grace were both talking about, the assessment. Um, that would be certainly one of the first places I would look to, just looking at your, work, your own workforce um, you know, what, what are the, get a good disaggregated demographic breakdown of the workforce and, you know, like what jobs do people are occupied by what people, where are people of color um, located within that ecosystem? Where are white people occupying uh, jobs? Who gets promoted and at what rates? Um, who is disciplined? Um, you know, all of these things, I think in, engaging with staff, uh, you will find that there are a lot of perceptions um, about how those um, practices are implemented and their racial impact um, on staff. So um, I think there, there's no wrong, I would say there's probably no wrong door um, to begin this process. Um, where there's some heat, where there's some interest in the organization, I would, I would start there, uh, start having the conversation. I'm not sure I would jump to like hiring somebody to do it, you know, bring in somebody, the expert from the outside. There's so much wisdom um, in our own organizations, especially uh, from uh, black, indigenous, people of color, uh, LGBTQ, people with disabilities, people who have experienced um, the, the harder parts of, of our workplaces. Um, are the ones who will have the most expertise around how to make improvements. I want to do one last turbo round of questions before we open it up to audience questions. We're getting a lot of really interesting ones coming in, so I want to make sure to leave plenty of time. Um, 
but it does feel important to recognize that uh, it can feel like a daunting time to focus on job quality as we face this pandemic economy when so many workers are really desperate for any job. Um, so I wanna ask about why and, and how you all have continued to focus on job quality during this time. Um, Sharmila, maybe we can start with you. Uh, you know, why has this continued to be a priority for you? I think there is absolutely no better time for us to be focused on job quality. This is the opportunity. We are going to have to be doing so much rebuilding and recovery. And that is the opportunity to institutionalize um, and, and systematize the changes that are necessary. The fact is, is that pre-pandemic, we were not in a situation where workplaces were working for everyone. And we were that we still had an economy that actually shut a lot of people out. Um, and so what we build to now and how we structure our recovery really needs to keep in mind that we are not trying to return to the past, but we are trying to execute and realize a vision for the future that is as inclusive that as it possibly can be. So this is the opportunity. This is the opportunity also that will reap rewards, not just for workers themselves, but also for employers, also for our communities. So from our perspective, you know, there has been so much generosity and um, goodwill towards essential workers and frontline workers, for example. Um, we need to back that up. It's great to applaud and it's even better to have a higher minimum wage. And um, so those are, those are really critical. Th those should be our jumping off points, right? Our, our recognition of the many ways in which our society is structured on invisible and undervalued labor, our realization of that should be the clarion call for us to be moving forward and moving forward with creating job qualities and doing so in partnership between organizations like those that are represented here um, and those employers who's, who really do want to be um, members of their communities and take care of their employees while also moving forward their bottom line. Very well said. I think all of us were uh, clapping our hands or stomping our feet along with you there. <laughs> Grace, anything you want to add to that? Um, big, big ditto, obviously. Um, you know, related to maybe employer engagement, um, if anything, I think that the pandemic has only reinforced our belief that you absolutely cannot talk about job quality unless you are also having a conversation about race equity. And to do anything less, you are really only having half a conversation. Um, and so we've seen that in stark, um, stark colors in our community. Young people have been hardest hit by the pandemic. Um, they were the first to have their hours cut, the first to lose their jobs, and typically were clustered in really vulnerable industries. And those negative impacts were really seen disproportionately by young people of color. And so, you know, it really had us thinking and doing some soul searching about like, how do young people of color end up in these vulnerable industries? And like, what role do we play in that? And it's something we've been grappling with for a while. Um, but I think what, what the pandemic really did is it put in, in, um, in a way you really couldn't miss the dire consequences 
of those short-term sort of now jobs for young people that are supposed to be stepping stones, um, the really dire consequences of them becoming sort of like stagnant, really poor um, work experiences for young people. Um, and I, I will just close the, the um, Philadelphia Fed came out with a report um, right in the middle of the summer of last year. The pandemic was sort of raging about um, a worker who was put into a low wage occupation in one year is more likely to completely fall out of the labor force than they are to advance. And so like for us, that really um, just spotlighted that like the difference between a young person having a great work experience that leads to um, a fruitful career and getting stuck in this like hamster wheel is the degree to which we as employer engagement staff are certain that that employer is invested and willing and able to provide a good work experience for young people. And so it really just, um, it highlights what I think we, we thought we knew, um, but it, it really put it into sort of um, uh, terms you couldn't, you couldn't run from, so. Monica, I want to go to you with uh, a very last question um, about an application of your tool in this pandemic recovery. Um, I understand that Seattle's working um, with the advocacy organization Rock to encourage local restaurants to prioritize racial equity as part of reopening. Um, tell us about the city's role in that work and why you think it's an important moment for restaurants um, to prioritize this element of job quality. Yeah, I'm really excited about our partnership uh, with Rock um, Restaurant Opportunities Centers United and um, in our office. We have, besides uh, the Race and Social Justice Initiative, which is what I've mostly been talking about, we of course also enforce federal and local civil rights laws. We have an enforcement unit as well as a policy um, division as well. And so our enforcement team has a testing program um, and I'm sure uh, folks are familiar with the concept of matched pair testing where um, with employment or housing, for example, uh, sending in two um, equally qualified candidates uh, who are matched, but for the characteristic you're testing for. In our case, we tested for race uh, in the um, restaurant and fine dining uh, sector um, well, with Rock. So Rock is our um, expert partner in that. And um, one of the, so we issued a report, they issued a report last summer and identified that yes, there was bias uh, that happens um, quite often in those interactions when someone is um, applying for a job. And I think importantly uh, for any of us who've ever worked in the restaurant industry, which you know, uh, so many of us have been uh, wait staff, I certainly have. Um, it is a very segregated uh, industry. Uh, who gets the jobs in the back of the house are primarily people of color and who works in the front of the house, primarily white employees. And so um, I think the moment, like what we're living through now with COVID, so many restaurants, um, some unfortunately closing down permanently, but so many sort of temporarily and then coming back in you know, some proportion but eventually we hope we'll be coming back 100% in um, indoor dining and we'll all be back eating in restaurants. Uh, it is an opportunity for those restaurants as they are bringing staff back and hiring staff to really think about and reassess 
who is getting which jobs um, and to do uh, an analysis of like, how, how are they hiring people? How are they recruiting? It's so often in the uh, restaurant industry a word of mouth. Um, and of course that is gonna perpetuate, you know, um, who is working in the different um, parts of the house. So um, we think that the report is a great eye-opener. It got a lot of attention um, at the time last summer. And now as restaurants hopefully will be reopening, um, it is a perfect opportunity for restaurants to, um, to do things differently. And as we've been saying, more equitably, like what everything that was wrong in the past, we're not gonna fix now, but we certainly have an opportunity to make a dent and to start doing things differently. Um, and so Race Forward, which I mentioned before, the national organization developed a racial equity toolkit specifically for the restaurant sector. Um, and it includes, you know, a self-assessment, you know, like you actually calculate, right? Um, how many employees you have? What are they uh, white or are they people of color? Where, which jobs do they have? And, um, you know, restaurants can end up with a score and then uh, with, have strategies on how they can um, change that score to be a more racially equitable um, organization. So I think um, that partnership has been great. It's been very eye-opening for, um, for many people. Um, not just in the restaurant industry. And I think um, using that as a way of, you know, how we bring back our economy um, in that sector and in, and in other sectors as well, uh, we do have an opportunity and these are the kind of tools that can help us. I wanna open up questions now. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna send this first question to you, Mariko. Um, the question is, how are workers with disabilities included in these conversations and considerations about workplace equity? Uh, that, thank you for that question. I saw it go by in the chat and I was like, oh, I should have uh, raised that. Um, so our office, as I said, uh, also enforces federal and, and local civil rights laws. And so um, disability is one of our protected classes, of course. And, um, and, and we are uh, working more and more to engage and understand disability justice. Um, in recently, we just had a, a couple of trainings for our, for our own staff, because while we um, work to enforce the laws that protect uh, people with disabilities. We also have to look at uh, how do we go beyond that and um, and really uh, ensure that uh, every opportunity is accessible. Um, that is one of the things that our office tests for is, is disability um, with, uh, with housing and employment. Um, and so, um, so typically that is the way we don't do a lot. I would say um, our office specifically with work with a job quality, but um, but our human resource department um, does you know like work specifically in that area and um, and and uh, disability is a uh, a cross cutting um, issue that we work in partnership with them and um, also other departments. Um, to address. Um, this next question, um, I'll, I'll send, uh, how about to Grace and Charmili, you both can duke it out to see who, who wants to take this one, but it's a question that's getting a lot of upvotes in our Q&A, um, and, and it's about whether there are tools that challenge how we value specific types of jobs. So for example, a business's finance team getting paid at levels so different from the social services providers um, how we value as a society the pay scales assigned to different 
kinds of jobs and careers. Have you seen anything that speaks to that? So I don't know if I have a specific tool. Sharmili, do you? I mean, I could give some thoughts on it, but unless you have a specific tool you want to share. Same here. So go ahead, Grace. Okay. Well, so I'll kick off. And I, I think this is going to be something that we in workforce development have to be talking about more and more. Um, you gave the example in the question of the finance department versus maybe the uh, someone else in the organization, but you could even think about what we consider in-demand industries. You know, in-demand industries are great jobs because they were historically jobs for white men often. And so um, as we look to changing our frames around what we consider and value a really good job to be, we're going to have to also do a little bit of unlearning about what makes a good job and um, start to consider like how we invest in sectors. I mean, writing the care sector off as just not good jobs and not treating them and resourcing them in the same way that we um, resource sort of like in-demand sectors. Um, I just think is such a missed opportunity. Um, so I'm sorry I don't have like a specific question, maybe beyond the reimagining retail toolkit, I think is actually good about thinking about retail in that way. Um, but I'll, I'll hand it over to Sharmila. I just wanted to say a thousand times, yes, we need to be thinking about that. Um, and, and I would also add that there, there are so many ways in which the, the value of um, specific roles and the value of labor is both racialized and gendered. So that within, within a company or within a specific role, it, even janitors versus housekeepers, right? So like cleaning staff and kind of like one is more tends to be more male dominated, the other more female dominated, and then those kind of are valued differently. I think we're seeing that certainly with things like the care sector, early childhood education, and there are efforts I think underway to try and um, address the the scope of what we're talking about with something like early childhood, where it's not just about uh, the childcare infrastructure, for example, is critical for people who are in caregiving roles to be able to even work in the first place. So we need it to be affordable, accessible quality, but we also need to make sure the people in those roles are compensated in a way that is appropriate for what they are doing for us, which is caring for some of the most precious people in our lives, right? So um, I do think some, some places to start, right, are high level um, investments in, in infrastructure that has to this date been extremely underinvested in. So I think about the childcare infrastructure, but I think about the care infrastructure overall as well. We also need to make sure that the protections around kind of like something like minimum wage or um, protections around jobs are extended to those who are in roles that aren't considered traditional employer employee relationships, right? So this might not like, um, uh, attach as directly to something like workforce development, but we have roles like domestic workers, for example, and making sure that the laws that we do have are actually being applied um, when it comes to providing some of the safety and protection that's necessary. But this is a huge issue and, and, and as I said, huge, very, very racialized and gendered in terms of how we think about labor. Yeah. Um... 
very helpful comments. And the one thing I would add as it relates to specific tools, this isn't a direct answer to the question, but um, Grace mentioned that there are a couple of cost of turnover calculators in the tools library. And I think what those do is show that, um, you know, what can be treated as sort of disposable labor wrongly, uh, losing those people um, has real cost implications for companies. So that can be a useful way to sort of start the conversation about um, some of the tangible and intangible ways that not valuing frontline workers uh, can hurt business success. I want to turn to another question from the chat. Um, this is more of a comment, but I think a useful one to respond to. And Mariko, I'm going to throw this one your way. Um, I think it's important to think about who is using the tools. For example, do evaluations conducted by white men differ from those conducted by black women? If those facilitating the tools are senior leadership and orgs are not diverse, I worry about how authentic the findings will be. So can you talk a little bit about the who of tool application and how to be sensitive about it? Yeah, thank you for that question uh, because I think it's really important and um, I would agree with the sort of premise of the question, which is that the it's going to be, you would definitely get different results depending on who is um, using the tool. So the uh, use of the racial equity toolkit calls for a team of people, um, not just, you know, one person. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, it is always easier for an organization to assign it to their, you know, to their race equity uh, leader or to the change team um, and not integrate it into the um, the fabric of leadership of the department. But we do uh, encourage, uh, you know, a, a spectrum of folks to participate um, in um, implementing the toolkit and um, and would always advise that it be, you know, a diverse team um, and should not be led by, uh, you know, particularly it should not be led by the, uh, someone who will not be the most impacted. So um, if we're talking about how do we increase equity, uh, it would be a mistake to have um, that toolkit led by a, a white male because they are not the most impacted. Um, certainly welcome on the team, um, you know, a perspective are, you know, are really important, but um, I think that's a good point to make and I appreciate you highlighting it. Grace, this next question is for you. Um, the question is, in terms of how employers react to job quality, do you see major differences between large employers, let's say more than 500 employees, uh, and small employers uh, with, say, less than 200 employees? Um, would be curious how you approach these conversations differently if you do. Sure. Um, so this this is really fascinating, and maybe I'll I'll draw from some experience too in other parts of my work. But absolutely. So really large businesses, um, they I think they get it in many ways. Like they can see the bottom line to their company culture. Um, and the business case for diversity um, in a way sometimes that I think can be very hard for smaller businesses that are working um, at a smaller scale. Um, I also think there's really great examples of larger companies who have um, been able to resource um, diversity and equity efforts across their organization in really meaningful ways. Um, and so, so like, yes, I think there is, I think there is a little bit of a difference. Um, but having said that, 
I think um, Mariko made this point and it's so important. Anyone, any business, any organization can start somewhere with diversity and equity. And so perhaps, um, you know, larger businesses who've been thinking about this work are more polished or have a more robust um, strategy in place. But absolutely smaller businesses, I think, can astonish you um, with, with the, the types of initiatives that they are able to put in place relatively quickly because of the agility of their organizations, right? It's not trying to um, change the, change. oh, I was gonna use a, a boat reference, changing the rudder on the ship, you know, in the same way that you do at a large business. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's kind of, that's, I don't know if that's a very satisfying answer, but definitely larger businesses, they've, they've been talking about this, I think, for a long time and they have the language around it. Um, but I don't think that means that we count smaller businesses out, you know, so. And I will not use any more boat metaphors. That was terrible. I am, <laughs> I am not, I've never been on a boat. I don't know why I drew that out of my, my tools. <laughs> We're all eager to get on a boat these days, I think. Um, and and I'll just add to that that uh, we we have some resources that that um, I'll ask my colleagues to drop in the chat, um, including a recent webinar featuring small businesses talking about their experience doing job quality work. And I think you know your point is well taken about the ways that large and small employers may come to this differently. But we've also seen examples of small businesses that really you know, they know all their workers, they hire from the local community, and they have um, both moral and business interest in um, making job quality improvements. Um, so, uh, you know, we hear that perspective come up a lot too. Um, we need to close, but I'm going to just share one last question, not for a verbal conversation, but in case any of you want to drop a resource in the chat or anyone in our audience wants to. Um, the question was, What's the best resource you've given employers to help them become more equitable in hiring, promoting, and retaining people of color? So if something comes to mind, you know, please do share it in the chat. And thank you again to all of you for joining us today. Uh, this was a fabulous discussion. So thank you to our amazing panelists. Um, and I think it underscored why it's so important that we sustain and strengthen our focus on job quality and equity as we rebuild from this crisis. I also wanna thank my Aspen colleagues for their support organizing this event and thank all of you in our audience for joining us and sharing your questions and comments and resources. What a great discussion in that, in that chat bar. Um, and we'll do our best to aggregate and share those resources along with the recording of the webinar. Um, I also wanna remind you that this week we're releasing our new job quality and practice survey. Uh, so please fill that out so that we can learn from you. Um, and as an added incentive, we will be selecting five respondents at random to receive a gift card. So. If, if your interest in job quality isn't enough, which I hope it will be, that's yet another reason to do it. Um, and finally, please do take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey, which will pop up momentarily. Um, and check out our slate of upcoming events. We have a great event um, next week focused on uh, California's Future of Work initiative. Um, so thanks again to all of you and um, looking forward to the next conversation.